Petar Velichkovich is a staff research scientist at DeepMind. He's firmly established himself as one of the most significant and up-and-coming researchers in the deep learning space. He invented graph attention networks in 2017, and he's been a leading light in the field ever since, pioneering research in graph neural networks, geometric deep learning, and also neural algorithmic reasoning. Recently, he's been applying category theory to take the geometric deep learning ideas one step further. If you haven't already, you should check out our show that we did on the geometric deep learning blueprint, which of course featured Petar, and I caught up with him last week at NeurIPS. Enjoy. Petar, it's fantastic to see you again. So this is the first time that I've, I've actually met you in person. We did that really cool show together on geometric deep learning with your proto book with uh, Taco. Mm -hmm. I spoke with Taco yesterday, but also uh, mm -hmm. uh, Michael Bronstein and, and um, uh, Joanne Brunner. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it's been a little while since mm -hmm. we've um, since we've really synced. Um, yeah. Now you've had this really really interesting um, uh, category theory series. Yeah. Can you start by um, uh, you know just letting us know what you've been doing there? Yeah, that's a great uh, great point and great to finally meet you in person, Tim. It's uh, it's uh, it's really great uh, to to catch up after after some time has passed and uh, yeah I mean I like to think that uh, all four of us myself Michael Jean and Taco uh, have a greater understanding of the implications of these methods since the last time we spoke if you remember back when we did our conversation I kind of hinted at the fact that category theory might hold some of the answers to yeah. maybe generalize some of these uh, geometric concepts beyond uh, the notion of just pure symmetries mm. and we believe that now we have a sufficient understanding of uh, these kinds of things that we were able to make this kind of mini course on categories for deep learning. And to me, it really feels like the natural continuation uh, of these concepts of geometric deep learning uh, into the realm beyond. And I'll explain that, uh, I'll explain that in a moment. Mm -hmm. But one other kind of very related point is that here at NeurIPS, we're actually presenting a full conference paper which deals with using category theoretic tools to invent new kinds of graph neural networks. So basically, it's, uh, it's not just that we're throwing a bunch of new theory, it actually leads to empirical findings that we can actionably use in our models day to day. So that's one point. That, that is uh, incredible. Can, can, can you sketch out the paper? Yeah, sure. So basically, maybe I'll first uh, take a step back to uh, explain uh, why do we think categories are important and in what mm -hmm. sense they're kind of a step further from what geometric deep learning already gives us. Yeah. So geometric deep learning concerns itself with giving us these uh, equivariant layers, right? Mm -hmm. So layers that uh, are in some sense resistant to operations of these symmetry transformations that fundamentally change an object, but the object is still the same. We still have all of it, right? And this immediately implies that these symmetries have to be composable, invertible, all that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, essentially, uh, the, uh, the category theory framework uh, is in some sense mindful of the fact that uh, while symmetries are a very nice way to reason about things that happen and that we see in nature, uh, they're often not completely an accurate representation of what happens. Very often there are operations, both in nature but especially in general computation, like say in algorithmic stuff, where uh, an operation of an algorithm might destroy half of your data. So that is no longer a symmetry, you cannot invert it, but you might still be interested in building a neural network model that is in some sense resistant to the operations of, uh, of say, this algorithm or this natural phenomenon that, you, that you're studying. One simple example that maybe predates our work a little bit uh, is uh, building some 
some kind of uh, equivariance to scaling operations. Obviously, if you scale or coarsen something, these are not always invertible transformations because if you coarsen the pixels of your image, you cannot perfectly reconstruct where you came from, yet you still might want to build a model that will give you the same answers regardless of how you scale up your input, right? So these are obviously things that are going to be very important as we move to more generic domains than ones that can be described purely through geometric and symmetry transformations, right? And uh, in that sense, um, the same way we had groups, representations, and equivariants in geometric deep learning, these are all special cases of categorical concepts like categories, functors, and natural transformations, which basically generalize all the stuff of geometric deep learning into the realm beyond. And in our paper, we try to use exactly these kinds of category theoretic tools to uh, study what it would mean to build a, say, graph neural network that is capable of behaving like a classical computer science algorithm, mm -hmm. in the sense that if you have some uh, data that's transformed by an algorithm. You may imagine, say, a pathfinding algorithm, where at every step, in every node, you have your knowledge of how far away is that node from the source vertex. And one step of the algorithm kind of looks at all the immediate neighbors and updates those beliefs of how far away you are. And now, say you want to have a GNN that simulates that, like we typically do in algorithmic reasoning. You take your you know, algorithmic state, you encode it with a neural network into this high-dimensional space. Mm -hmm. Your GNN then processes it to update the latent space. And now you want to be able to decode it, right, so that you predict whatever the next state is going to be. So you have something which uh, in category theory we use a lot is known as a commutative diagram. Mm -hmm. So basically it's saying you can either take the step of the algorithm or you can encode, process, decode, and hopefully end up in the same place. So category theory seems like a very nice uh, language to study these kinds of, uh, uh, I won't call them symmetries, they're basically like uh, uh, you know interchangeable sequences of operations mm -hmm. because the step of an algorithm might not be invertible. You might not be able to go back after you do one step of, uh, you know, shortest path algorithm because it's a contraction map, right? When you find the final solution of a shortest path algorithm, you won't necessarily know which previous state led you there because there could be many equivalent uh, states that could lead you to the same contracted solution, right? Mm -hmm. So our method, uh, using these category theory frameworks, try to characterize how these graph neural networks align with a target algorithm that we might want to simulate. And we detect various ways not only to explain the code of graph neural networks from this kind of perspective, but also it gives us a very interesting sort of, uh, if you've done any functional programming, a type checker of sorts to kind of detect whenever we're using our representations in slightly broken ways. Mm. So specifically, to give you one very concrete example, in a categorical framework, just like in functional programming, you expect your transformations to be functions. That is, uh, for every input, there should be a unique output. However, one thing that people very often do in graph representation learning when they want to predict outputs not only in the nodes but also in the edges is to reuse the edge messages both as edge outputs and integrated over all the other messages to get node outputs, right? But this is a problem from the categorical perspective because this is no longer a function. You cannot get a function that takes, you know, edges to edges plus nodes without sending the same thing into two different places in this case, right? And, you know, just because it mathematically breaks doesn't mean you cannot implement it. In fact, 99% of uh, the GNN implementations you'll find online will do this exactly in this particular way. DeepMind's GraphNets library does this, for example. However, uh, you know, just because you can implement it doesn't mean that there's something not potentially a bit tricky going on in the sense that you're putting a bit of representational pressure on that edge message, right? Because now it has to be used for two potentially very different things, both for some output in the edges, but also it needs to be integratable into nodes where it predicts something potentially wildly different. And you know, while gradient descent can take care of this and give you a model that fits your training distribution well, 
you're not like to deal with this pressure, it's probably going to have to learn something which has nothing to do with the algorithm that you want to align to. Mm -hmm. And as a result, your error distribution extrapolation performance is going to be much, much worse. And any self-respecting algorithm should extrapolate well. That's the main property of algorithmic reasoning, right? And we find that just by, you know, splitting this message function into two streams, one which goes into the edges and one which goes into the nodes, we get basically significant empirical benefits when extrapolating on edge-centric algorithms. Yeah. Amazing. So um, Epeta has just produced this incredible series, which is available on YouTube. Where, mm -hmm. where can folks find it? Yeah. So basically, uh, if you just go to cats.4.ai, you can see uh, all of the main series lectures uh, from our course, which uh, uh, starts off with assuming kind of a, a foundational knowledge of uh, deep learning with neural networks, backpropagation, and so on. Uh, and then also tries to introduce these concepts of category theory and how we can use them to to rethink the way we might uh, go about some of our standard ideas in deep learning, like compositionality yeah. or functional structure of deep learning uh, pipelines, or even how can we reinterpret backpropagation from the perspective of categorical uh, theory. And each lecture basically deals with uh, one particular aspect, and it, uh, we try to keep it grounded from the beginning to keep it motivated, so every single lecture is aligning itself with one particular top-tier paper that one of us has published uh, on one of these venues like in Europe. And one thing I'll also mention is that the course is actually, in principle, still ongoing because besides the main series of five lectures that uh, myself, Bruno, Pim, and Andrew have given, we also have several interesting guest lectures where we try to bring in other influential people at the intersection of uh, popularizing category theory with deep learning concepts in a way that uh, can like bring an even wider area of views once you're kind of trained in the basics of these techniques, how they are applied to various other things like causality. We had Taco Cohen tell us uh, about how he uses these concepts to reimagine re causality through a categorical lens. We have, uh, we're going to have Ty Danae Bradley. She's a very popular uh, mathematics educator generally. She will show how she used some of these concepts to explain transformers. And uh, one thing I'm very excited about uh, early next year, we'll have actually a guest talk from David Spivak, which mm -hmm. is uh, one of the co-authors of the very famous uh, Seven Sketches in Compositionality book, which is what initially, one of the things that got me really excited about category theory uh, in the first place. So I'm really keen to, to hear all these perspectives as well. Yeah, the man is a legend. And, and also uh, on Taco, I interviewed him yesterday and, and his work on causality is really, really exciting. Yeah. Um, what would you say to people who might be intimidated or scared by category theory? Mm. That is, so one thing that, uh, that I should mention here is that uh, one point about being intimidated or scared about category theory is that to like really be able to utilize these ideas in how you do research or uh, build your models or anything, it does require a reasonably significant buy-in. So this is not something that you can just read one blog post and suddenly you're empowered to do it. This is like one key thing. But I would say the main thing that might make people a bit scared to do it uh, is the fact that many category theory resources out there are a bit guided towards mathematicians. Mm -hmm. So they will tend to use uh, the kind of language and the kind of examples that will be quite attractive to someone who has studied, say, various kinds of differential geometry or topology or something like this. And these kinds of areas tend to generally scare off uh, people who come from a more computer science style background. And uh, basically, I would say the answer to that is you need to find the right resource for you. Category theory is no more or no less than a way to take a bird's eye view of the phenomena that you try to study. And when you study these phenomena from high in the sky, details become invisible, but uh, you suddenly get a much better feel for the structure and you can utilize kind of the nice 
uh, patterns that uh, reappear across various fields. And this, you would argue, is kind of the essence of what we're trying to do in deep learning. We have a lot of analogical way in which these architectures are constructed, right? So cats for ai is one possible answer to that. It's our way to kind of, as half of us are deep learners and half of us are category theorists trying to apply these techniques to deep learning, we believe we have a sort of unique perspective of we and like we understand what makes people afraid to try to talk about these things because some of us had to go through it ourselves to deal with the, the way in which the materials are arranged online right now. So yeah, maybe just uh, these kinds of resources, starting with them and basically trying as much as possible not to uh, descend into the depths of uh, NCAT lab as the very first thing that you do, uh, can be a good way to maybe stay sane during the first few uh, you know weeks or months of trying to explore this field. Wonderful, yeah. I wondered if you could give a couple of examples of where category um, theory has been used in, in an adjacent field. I can think of two. I can think of Rosen using category theory to describe, um, uh, you know, sort of ecosystems and, and life. I can also think of some quantum mechanics folks that have come up with a categ uh, category theoretical um, conception of, of, mm -hmm. of quantum mechanics. Right. Are there any other ones? Yeah. So, I mean, I can start by giving the examples that I know about closest in terms of just deep learning. So one particular example that I think uh, could be quite interesting. Uh, is uh, the work uh, that was published at NeurIPS two years ago, which I think is one of the first papers that really tried to use uh, categorical concepts to build these uh, structures, is the Natural Graph Networks paper from Pim Dehan, Taco Cohen, and Max Swelling, which uh, effectively uh, realizes the fact that the way we build graph neural networks, very often we have this one shared message function that's applied everywhere, on every single edge, on every single graph that you get. But in reality, is this necessary for it to be a legitimate graph neural network? That's actually not the case because if I give you two completely non-isomorphic graphs, if I choose to have completely different message functions in those two graphs, that's totally fine because it's still a valid graph net. If I permute any of those graphs, I'll get the permutation equivariant function for the two of them separately. There needs to be no weight sharing between them. And naturally, concepts like these, so this kind of requires taking a step above the group theoretic view of, uh, of geometric deep learning and into the realm of what is known as a groupoid. You kind of imagine uh, every single uh, graph structure, isomorphic graph structure, living on a sort of I island of possible adjacency matrix representations of it. And for those graphs living on those islands, you need to have some weight sharing. But for separate islands, you don't need to have any weight sharing whatsoever. Of course, in practice, uh, these kinds of layers, you would need to have some kind of sharing of weights in order to make them scalable to arbitrary new graph structures you haven't seen at training time. But it allows you a lot more flexibility about uh, how you go about building your functions. And you're no longer constrained to have just one function everywhere repeated, right? So that's maybe one example that. Uh, at least to me, was what first motivated me and made me realize that there's more to this stuff than just to say what uh, group theory will give us. Yeah. Amazing. And um, I'm really interested in your work in algorithmic reasoning. I, I know you were just discussing it but as, yeah. as an adjacent thing. And um, I, very soon we want to make a show actually on, on your work on that. But <laughs> if you wouldn't mind, could you just sketch out algorithmic reasoning? Yes, wonderful. So uh, very happy to. Basically, um, what are we interested in algorithmic reasoning is building neural networks. They tend to be graph neural networks, but generally speaking, neural networks that are capable of executing algorithmic computation. So if I give you some context on what is the state of a particular algorithm, can my network somehow learn to execute that algorithm, ideally in some latent space, such that at every single step of the way, I could, if I wanted to, decode the states of that algorithm. So that's basically the, the main premise. Why do we care about this? Well, basically, 
basically, I think of algorithms as a sort of basic foundational building block of reasoning. And it's kind of a timeless principle where, you know, a software engineer reads through one of these textbooks on algorithms and, you know, learns these 30 or 40 basis algorithms. And then that knowledge kind of serves them for life in a whole career of software engineering. So basically, we have this hypothesis that you have this, you know, nice basis of algorithms that if you can master how to do them robustly, you can kind of try to mimic any kind of at least polynomial time reasoning behavior. And that's really nice because if you look at the way current uh, state-of-the-art large-scale models uh, tend to have shortcomings, it's usually in those kinds of robust extrapolation problems. Basically, if we want to give, if we want to have a really good AI scientist that's able to not just, you know, make great uh, sense of a bunch of training data from the internet, but also use that training data to derive new knowledge, you need some robustified way to apply rules to get, you know, infinite knowledge from finite means, right? Uh, so basically, that's what we want to do. We want to find ways, inductive biases or training procedures to build neural networks that are more algorithmically capable. And uh, in algorithmic reasoning, we obviously spent a lot of time trying to make this happen, just building better graph neural networks that align better with target algorithms so that you can execute them better neurally. But then the really exciting part comes where we've actually taken some of these graph neural networks that have been pre-trained to execute one particular algorithm, and then we deployed it in a real-world problem where that algorithm is required, and we achieved, say, significant representational benefits in terms of downstream accuracy. So the idea behind this, and I'll give an example from uh, Google Maps, this is uh, an application that I worked on uh, at DeepMind, so it's uh, like something that I've thought about quite a bit. You know, we've invented these algorithms like Dijkstra's algorithm to be able to resolve these kinds of uh, real-world routing problems, right? That's the kind of motivation for why you want to build a shortest path algorithm. And, you know, it comes as a little surprise that when you have real-world traffic data, you might be tempted to apply Dijkstra's algorithm to solve it, to route uh, agents in traffic. Mm. However, uh, what is the actual data that, say, Google Maps has access to? It's not, you know, this nice abstractified graph with a single scalar in every edge where you can just go ahead and apply an algorithm. In fact, there's a huge bridge that must be built between the real data and the input to the algorithm. In fact, Google Maps data is typically, you know, people's cell phones in their cars, and the cars move, the phones move, and then based on the movement of the phones, you somehow infer how fast the car is going or something like that, right? And, uh, you know, this is very noisy, not very well structured, and you have have to somehow go from there to a graph where you can apply this heuristic. Previously, it was always done exclusively by humans, like feature engineers effectively. And whenever there's a human feature engineer in the loop like this, you are almost certainly going to drop a lot of information that you might need to solve the problem. So basically, you have a huge kind of bridge to cross there. And with algorithmic reasoning, we now don't use Dijkstra's algorithm. We use a high-dimensional graph net that was pre-trained to execute Dijkstra's algorithm in a latent space. So now this gives us a differentiable component that we can hook up to any encoder and decoder function we want to. So we can go straight from raw data, encode it into the GNN's latent space, run the algorithm there, and then decode whatever it is that you need, like routing the, the vehicles in traffic. So now, purely through backprop, this encoder function now learns to do what the human feature engineer did. It learns how to most effectively map that complicated, noisy, real-world data into the latent space where this GNN can best do its thing. That's that really is software 2.0. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you about the, the computational limitations because you, you just said something interesting about you know representing um, you know infinite 
infinite objects with, with a finite memory. Yeah. So neural networks are not Turing machines, yes. um, but, but they can extrapolate, of course. Yeah. What, what, what's the realistic limitation? Let, let's say you're trying to learn an algorithm. Mm -hmm. um, how, how far can you go with a neural network? Right. So the thing is, there are cases where you can go very far. We do have theory that uh, is very robust about this, and I think it's theory that uh, is actually quite easily understandable. Uh, so let me try to let me try to kind of uh, visualize it. Imagine you have a ReLU MLP, your standard universal approximator. It's basically a piecewise linear function, right? So as you go far enough away from the training data, you're going to hit that level of extrapolation where you hit the linear part of the piecewise linear. And at that point, if your target function is not linear, no extrapolation is going to happen, right? You're not going to fit the function properly. So what's one outcome of this theory is that if you use ReLU MLPs, this was a great paper from MIT a few years back, which showed that basically um, you need to line up parts of your neural network such that they learn linear functions in the target. And that's the reason why, say, when you want to imitate a pathfinding algorithm, you want to use a max aggregation in your GNN and not sum. Where, you know, sum is universal, it can fit anything, but the function you have to learn, because pathfinding is like minimum over all neighbors of distance to neighbor plus the edge weight. Suddenly, you know, when you put max in there, it's a linear function. When you put sum in there, it's a highly nonlinear function, so it's going to extrapolate much worse. Now, there's been some great follow-up work uh, on this from uh, Beatrice Bevilacqua, Bruno Ribeiro from Purdue University, that was at ICML a few years back, which showed that this idea with like you want linear targets uh, with rarely MLPs, it's really just a special case of a more general idea that if you want to extrapolate, say, on different sizes of graphs, you need you to have some implicit causal model of what your test data is going to look like. This linear algorithmic alignment is just one special case of a causal model like that. So those are, those are, so basically, if you line things up properly from a causal perspective, you should, in principle, be able to extrapolate. I mean, we have a clear non-parametric evidence that you can extrapolate is the algorithm itself, right? Yeah. Now the key is to find the right sweet spot between full universal approximator MLPs and algorithms on the other side, right? Interesting. I, I spoke to Jan the other day. He had um, he had a, a paper a couple of years ago about you know extrapolation in neural networks, saying yeah. they always extrapolate. Yes. Um, I've been speaking with Rando Belastriero, and he's mm -hmm. got this paper, the spline theory of neural networks, mm -hmm. which is about you know you have these input sensitive um, polyhedra in the ambient space, and I, I always took that to mean well they're quite interpolative and uh, it's just an affine transformation for a single input. But yeah. what, what he's shown, though, is that actually it, even an MLP with ReLUs is extremely extrapolative mm -hmm. because um, you can remove a whole bunch of data and um, depending on how you've uh, designed the network architecture, mm -hmm. it will still inform that region that, that, that you've taken away. So, I mean, I don't know, are you familiar with the spline theory and, and do, do you think it's a useful mm -hmm. framework? Yeah, so one thing I would say, uh, the way I understand Jan's paper, it could be that, uh, that I missed some detail, but the way I understand it is that here we're talking about interpolation extrapolation with respect to the geometry of the data. So like yeah. you take, say, the convex hull of yeah. all the training points, and then, yeah, it's very common, especially in these high-dimensional image spaces, right? It's very easy to push one dimension sufficiently to escape the convex hull of what you've seen so far. So I guess when I say extrapolation out of distribution, I'm actually maybe thinking of a more probabilistic argument. So mm -hmm. something like if you think of the probability distribution induced by the training set, which obviously allows you to extrapolate away from the convex hull, right? But if you go sufficiently far from the modes of that distribution, 
information. So you explore a part of the space that hasn't really been covered, uh, you know, from a from a probabilistic mass point of view uh, in the training data. That is where that is what we're actually thinking of when we say out of distribution generalization. But yeah, I fully agree with you. Like in terms of uh, just convex hull arguments, we very often ask these regular MLPs to go beyond the convex hull, and they seem to work quite well uh, in those regimes. But uh, here I'm talking really about going like significantly beyond the convex hull to like some region that really wasn't touched. And what we do, for example, in our papers is we train on 16 node graphs to execute these algorithms, mm -hmm. and then we test it on four times larger, 64 node graphs. And what this means, because an algorithm might have, say, n cubed time complexity, it means the trajectory over which you have to roll it out is also much, much longer than what you've seen in training time. So it's really a test of like very different conditions than what you've seen at training time. Right? That's interesting. And then, yeah. first of all, I completely agree with you that this binary convex whole notion of, of, of extrapolation probably isn't, isn't particularly useful. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, um, folks like Francois Chalet um, described the way neural networks work as kind of bending the space, um, yeah. you know, progressively with, with mm -hmm. layers. But I really like this um, polyhedra idea. Mm -hmm. um, contrast the algorithmic reasoning with GNNs. I mean, I spoke with Hattie uh, Zoe from mm -hmm. uh, Google Brain Team yeah. the other day. She's doing the, um, the, the in-context prompting, mm -hmm. um, you know, yes. for, for algorithm learning. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, how would you contrast those two approaches? Yeah. So basically, I would really like these approaches to be reconciled going forward in the sense that, uh, like, I don't see them as going one without the other, if that makes sense. So on one side, uh, and I'm going to invoke the same principles I mentioned during our during our MLST episode, you know, Daniel Kahneman's book, System 1 and System 2, right? I think you cannot have one without the other. So you have these amazing large-scale perceptive models that are really amazing at, you know, taking the complexities of the real world and somehow getting interpretable enough concepts out of there that they can, you know, make sense of what's going on and, like, drive many interesting real-world decision-making problems, although they might lose a little bit on having to do something like what an AI scientist would be expected to do, which is, like, extrapolate and generate new concepts out of what they've seen. Mm -hmm. And as you said, these kinds of specifically tailored prompts might enable the model to take things a step or two further, but it's always, like it's kind of, in, in spirit, it's the same thing as algorithmic reasoning because we teach a model to execute an algorithm by forcing it to imitate the algorithm step by step. Here, you prompt a language model by telling it what are some of the steps, like just like you're trying to teach a student how to solve a homework, right? Telling them the individual steps they need to do and then letting the language model Model go off on its own to solve it. But where I see the real future of these uh, two methods converging is you're going to have your system one component that gets your concepts out very nicely, cleanly. And then those concepts, because we're working with transformers nowadays anyway, most of the time, are going to be very slot based. So that plays very nicely with GNNs, which expect nodes as input, right? So you can maybe hook up in some nice way those concepts into a graph neural network that was trained to execute a bunch of algorithms and then, you know, kind of get the best of both worlds. So have your perceptual component do the perception and maybe prompt it as well to kind of do it in a particularly step-by-step -step manner and then further have a robust component that makes you not have to relearn all those things that neural networks we know theoretically cannot learn to do that well because of these extrapolation arguments. Maybe one last point I would make to kind of uh, cement this. If you've been around the archive recently, you might have seen our paper on a generalist neural algorithm learner, where we have actually used GATO-style ideas to train one graph neural network that can execute 30 very diverse algorithms all in the same architecture.
architecture with a single set of weights. So sorting, searching, pathfinding, dynamic programming, convex halls, all those kinds of nice things, very diverse ways of reasoning. We believe something like that could maybe be a basis of, say, a foundation model of reasoning in the future that could nicely hook up to the foundation models we already know and love in the realm of perception. Amazing. And what's the biggest research challenge for you next year? Mm. So next year, I would really like to uh, show to what extent these things can scale in the real world. So we already have several isolated papers that showed that uh, these ideas can work on real problems. We have Excelwin, where we applied it to reinforcement learning. That was in Europe Spotlight last year. We have RMR, where we applied it to self-supervision problems. We also have uh, one paper currently under review at iClear, where we successfully apply it to supervised learning. So we say pre-train on a flow algorithm, and we deploy it on like brain vessel segmentation tasks and stuff like that. So we have many isolated cases where you learn a particular algorithm, and it works really well in a real-world scenario. Like, I would like to see how can we take this idea and truly put it to the test at larger scales, both in terms of number of problems we attack, uh, or number of nodes that we support, or anything in between. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, Dr. Pata Velichkovic, yeah. uh, let's just, um, we'll, get a, we'll get a shaking hand shot. Don't All right. This. <laughs> Sounds Thank good. you so much for joining us. Thank really you for having it. me. I really appreciate it. Dr. Ishan Misra of Meta and Lex Friedman fame uh, came over and had a chat with us. Uh, Ishan is one of the world's leading experts in computer vision. So what was your paper about? Uh, yeah, basically uh, we tried to have like global propagation, the likes of what you see in transformers, mm -hmm. but like, uh, you know, with sparse, uh, sparse costs, right? So, uh, but in a way that like will still allow you to have nice global communication properties and no bottlenecks and stuff like that. So we basically have this idea of you could generate like these expander graphs, uh, which uh, allow you to have nice sparsity properties. So basically every node I think has degree four in the graphs we, we compute. Mm -hmm. And you need only logarithmically many steps to traverse the graph, which means you can still do it efficiently with a small number of steps. Um, and yeah, it seems to empirically work well on a bunch of graph benchmarks. So nice. yeah, it's, uh, I think it's only scratching the surface of uh, what we can do because we literally just generate a graph at random and slap it onto like mask the computations, but uh, yeah, it's an interesting start. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. How about your conference? How's it been? So it's been pretty good. Uh, we're organizing the self-supervised learning workshop tomorrow, mm -hmm. which is going to be probably, I hope, like uh, useful to a lot of people. Yeah. We're going to have a bunch of speakers coming from vision, language, NLP, mm -hmm. um, like speech and so on. Right. And yeah, we're also presenting a poster there, mm -hmm. uh, which is about learning joint image and video representations, which mm -hmm. are state of the art across image and video benchmarks using right. a single model. Nice. On the final day of the conference, I caught up with Petra again at the poster session for NeurIPS, which is the Symmetry and Geometry and Neural Representations group. And his paper was selected by all of the reviewers at the conference as being in the top 10, which is super impressive. But uh, this is Petar um, talking about his paper. So uh, in the expander graph propagation work, uh, we are trying to solve what is, in my opinion, one of the most important problems in graph representation learning currently unsolved, which is the oversquashing problem. And effectively, it is a task which, it's a problem which plagues uh, graph neural networks regardless of which parameters you choose or which model you choose. It's really something that often depends on the topology of the graph. And it's a situation where no matter how hard you try, no matter which parameters you set, um, the 
amount of features you would need to compute, so the size of your latent space, would have to be exponential in the number of layers for the pairs of nodes to efficiently communicate. We don't always know when it happens, but very often it tends to happen around these bottlenecks. So basically, in this particular graph, you have these two communities that are tightly connected, and you have this just one critical edge connecting them, and this edge is now under a lot of pressure. If you want data from these nodes to travel to these nodes and vice versa, this, no, this edge has to be mindful of a lot of things. So the size of the, of the feature space required for this edge grows exponentially, and things get even worse when you look at trees. Trees are like the canonical worst case example, where you know cutting off this edge would really trigger all sorts of bottleneck cases, and essentially you need basically a number of, to store information about a number of nodes that grows exponentially in the, in the number of steps, just to be able to travel to the other side of the tree. So this is a fundamental problem of propagating data, which has nothing to do with the choice of model, just, you know, topology. And uh, what do we try to do to fix this problem? You would ideally want, so first we start off with the assumption that this kind of global talking is actually beneficial. Of course, there are some tasks where you might not want data to travel in this way, because if it's a highly homophilous, uh, data-driven problem, then you might want information to stay in the community, to not get diluted. But we assume in many tasks, like say molecular property prediction tasks, you actually want data to travel globally. So that's exactly what we do. Uh, that's our first assumption. As we just described, we don't really want these bottlenecks to exist because if there's a bottleneck, uh, no matter what you do with the model, it's not going to work well. Uh, we would ideally want the complexity to be scalable so we can apply this to graphs of arbitrary sizes. You know, one simple solution to this problem is to use like a graph transformer, which would connect every node to every other node and give you kind of a trivially uh, setting with no bottlenecks. However, and as we will show later, transformer, you know, these fully connected graphs are trivial dense expanders actually so they fit our theory but they are dense and they won't scale so we don't necessarily want that and lastly because it's often quite computationally painful to kind of clear these bottlenecks in a kind of input data driven way uh, especially if you have lots of online graphs coming into your problem we might ideally want a method that doesn't have to do like dedicated pre-processing of the input graph and actually satisfying all four of these at the same time turns out to be quite tricky we actually have you know uh, done a literature survey of a bunch of related works and it seems really hard to tick all four of these boxes and our method the expander graph propagation tends to tick all four of them so how do we do it basically we propose to propagate information over these expander graphs which are known constructs from graph theory specifically expander graphs have mathematical properties of a high chigger constant so very low bottlenecks which is good uh, a low diameter meaning you'll get global information propagation very efficiently however additionally we can build expanders in a sparse manner using this standard mathematical construction from the special linear group. And that actually guarantees us that the degree of every node will be 4, therefore the graph will be sparse. And uh, actually the only generative parameter of these graphs is the size of the group, this n over here. So it's very easy to generate an expander for a particular number of nodes. You just tell me what n you want and I'll give you a graph. So when you look at an expander, it looks something like this. It is basically, what I like to say, it looks a bit like the human brain, right? Every node kind of has this very local connectivity to its 
for immediate neighbors. But as you go far away, like log n steps, you get a lot of cycles being closed very quickly and the global communication properties get like really good. So that's our proposal. Take basically, you know, your state-of-the-art graph net that you care about. We literally just take the code actively available implementation. We switch the graph neural network uh, connectivity in every even layer to operate over one of these guys rather than the input graph. So basically you kind of alternate input graph, expander graph, input graph, expander graph, so that the input graphs uh, layers are responsible for the usual local computations that a GNN wants to do. And the expander layers are responsible within diffusing that information globally in a sparse and scalable way. And this seems to work well. So on all the data sets we tried this construction, it was better than the baseline. And as I said, all we did was change the connectivity. So the number of parameters is exactly the same. It's really like an apples to apples comparison and it led to like statistically significant results. One last point I would like to make is, uh, you know, we're not the only group that tried to study this problem. Concurrently to us, uh, the group of Michael Bronstein with uh, Jake Topping and Francesco Di Giovanni had this great paper on curvature analysis, which was actually one of the best paper awardees at iClear 2022. And uh, basically in this paper, they claim that uh, if you have negatively curved edges, so edges with uh, very negative curvature, uh, those tend to be the ones responsible for the formation of bottlenecks and therefore over squashing. So naturally, we wanted to connect our, our expanders to this theory, so we computed the curvature of our graphs. But we found that actually the graphs that we build are negatively curved everywhere. So it has a curvature of negative one very quickly as you increase the size of the graph, right? So obviously, you know, we built a negatively curved graph everywhere, yet it still seems to work well. So what gives, right? We tried to analyze this a bit further. First, we showed that the curvature of negative one is actually not that small. Like the theorem in this paper is only invoked when the curvature is close to minus two. So in our case with curvature of negative one, it's actually not sufficiently negative to trigger that failure case of this theorem. And additionally, we took it a step further and we actually tried to analyze how easy it is to satisfy these three properties at once. So to have sparsity, we said sparsity is good for scalability. To have a low bottlenecks, so a high Cheeger constant, which would mean you don't have these kinds of pathological propagation problems. And uh, thirdly, to have positive curvature, which seems to be a good idea based on the analysis of this paper. And we actually proved, there is a theorem in our paper that proves that these three things are incompatible with each other, in that there's only finitely many graphs that satisfy these three properties simultaneously. So as you go to large enough input graphs, to be sparse and to have no bottlenecks, you have to be negatively curved somewhere. It's impossible to avoid it. So while we don't study the implications of this any further, we do believe that it calls on the community in the future to study uh, what happens in this gray area where the curvature is negative but not too negative. Because it seems like something like that might be critical to having the most optimal message passing possible. And that is basically the rough summary uh, of our work. Yeah. Amazing.